Today I'm going to talk about infections passed on by food and drink. And this is a lecture in a series on the five main ways by which infections are passed on between or to humans. And the reason that's important is if you understand the route of transmission, then you can work out a way of combating the infection, stopping it spreading. And of course, these are very different depending which ones you're dealing with. So in the last lecture in this series, I talked about vector-borne diseases, insects and arachnids, that actually you can actually, by interfering with the insects, you can stop the transmission of the infection. Today, I'm going to be talking about one of the commonest routes of transmission, and that's the oral route, uh, almost entirely by food, water, and other drinks. A point I will make repeatedly through these series is that for almost all infections, there is a dominant route and sometimes only a single route by which they're transmitted. There may be some secondary routes as well, so they may use more than one of these. There's usually a dominant route, and that is the one you need to tackle if you want to reduce the infection. Now, from the point of view of the infecting virus, bacteria, parasite, uh, the oral route is potentially a very good one uh, for an infection to enter the body. And therefore, multiple viruses and bacteria have evolved to use it. Uh, and the reasons for this are pretty straightforward. Water and food are essential. You can't avoid uh, taking things in orally. Um, it doesn't actually, from the infection's point of view, require the person or the animal doing the infecting to meet the infected person. That's in contrast to some of the other routes I'll talk about later in the series. So, for example, with cholera, which is passed on through water, go on to more of that later, uh, you could be quite a long way downstream of the person uh, who does the infecting through the water source. And with several of these infections, people are often infected for uh, long periods, years uh, potentially, uh, and therefore can infect uh, people over quite a long period of time. Now, within this broad category of infections by the oral route, there are several particular routes which uh, infections use. And again, it's important to work out which of them is the principal one, because uh, that way you can actually target the countermeasures to the most effective uh, way. The first is waterborne, uh, actually through drinking water uh, or its uh, products. Second, uh, milk uh, and milk products and eggs, so dairy, uh, dairy products. Then, and uh, there'll be quite a bit of this uh, in this talk, um, the various ways by which either human feces or animal feces can contaminate food uh, and uh, water, particularly food, uh, and that's actually uh, very important. The key, really, to controlling many of these is keeping feces and food separate. Sounds obvious uh, to, to, to say. It's actually uh, surprisingly more difficult to do. And then there are a variety of particularly parasites of animals uh, and fish, uh, which humans are a central host, but they have a very complicated life cycle which, where they switch between the animal and the human and back again. Uh, and then finally, there are some, uh, some infections where humans are accidentally infected. They're what's called a dead-end host. They can't be transmitted by humans, but they're transmitted to us uh, by animals, uh, in a sense, uh, without being, that being part of the life cycle. And I'll go through examples of all of these. So it's a relatively uh, varied uh, group of infections that are passed on orally. Now, Doing it slightly differently, if you know the transmission is via the oral route, there are some broad, clear countermeasures, and that really depends on where they come from. If the infection is from humans, then hygiene, especially hand washing after defecation, sanitation, which is feces disposal and clean water, and cooking or washing and boiling things uh, is the key, and you need to use some combination of these. If it's from animals or poultry that the infections are coming, then uh, you need to start at a slightly different stage, animal husbandry and agricultural practices. But you also need to use hand washing when cooking and cooking meat. So uh, that one comes, those two come up repeatedly. And if it's from fish, 
uh, then uh, cooking uh, and freezing are essential. So there are a variety of things you can do uh, very broadly uh, to, uh, as countermeasures. But as I come on to, uh, the majority of the ways that we deal with this are in fact not medical interventions in the ordinary sense. Because for the oral route of infection, engineers, farmers, food handlers and cooks are far more important to interrupting the transmission of infection than doctors. And that's been true uh, for millennia. And there are some of the ways that this uh, is, they can contribute. Let's start off with the engineers. Clean water technology has been central to keeping infections, particularly waterborne infections, uh, down uh, over centuries. And I've given an example here of uh, the Pont de Garde in France, a Roman uh, aqueduct taking water from one place to another. Sewers are uh, really essential. We don't think really much about them, but in the pre-sewer era, uh, it was much more common that human feces would get into water and into food and therefore uh, lead to trains of transmission. Uh, and cooking and chilling and freezing technology, refrigeration and cookers of different sorts, uh, are also essential. So that's some of the things the engineers have contributed. And then uh, on the... Uh, on the food handling side, hygienic animal husbandry has really changed the way in which many infections are passed between animals and therefore on to humans. Identifying and isolating diseased animals uh, is uh, very important so they don't get into the food chain and maintaining a hygienic and cooled food, food chain uh, all the way from uh, field uh, to fork. So these are the kinds of uh, areas which have led to a very significant improvement uh, in infections passed on by the oral route. I'll start off with water. And here I think it's important to use a rather, well, I'm going to use a rather uh, old-fashioned, but I think uh, useful notation, the comparison of waterborne diseases and water-washed diseases. Waterborne diseases are infections that are passed on in the water you drink. So you drink water or its products uh, and you catch the infection from the water. Uh, water wash diseases, uh, and these overlap, are diseases that are passed on because people don't have enough water to wash their hands uh, after they've been dealing with uh, dirty uh, things or have been defecating themselves. And if they don't have enough water, that can lead to uh, a variety of possible oral infections. These tend to cause diarrheal diseases, uh, uh, cholera, typhoid, polio, the parasite cryptosporidium and giardia and others uh, can be things which are passed on by water. You drink a glass of water uh, and if it's contaminated you could catch one of these. Uh, and then the water wash diseases are where lack of water leads to reduced hygiene or sanitation and a whole variety of diarrheal diseases are passed on this way. Now, the archetypal waterborne disease is cholera. It's endemic, that means it's there in low levels along all the time, especially in the deltas of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, but when it gets into human populations, uh, it can cause massive diarrhea uh, in individuals and in populations. And someone can pass out several times their body weight in fluid uh, if they actually catch an infection and therefore die of really severe and rapid dehydration. Historically, there have been seven major pandemics. First, the first one started that we know of in 1817. The seventh started in the 1960s and is actually still ongoing. And over that time, tens of millions of humans have been killed by it. And if we go back to probably the most famous epidemic in England, uh, there have been many others in other places, the, the 1854 London epidemic, mortality rates of up to 12% were seen. So this killed a lot of people. Famously in this one, this epidemic, John Snow, uh, one of the first uh, real epidemiologists, uh, mapped cases onto certain water companies and famously onto the Broad Street pump. And this is a slightly coloured up version of the map he did uh, showing where the pump, which is the epicentre of a particular cholera outbreak was. And he rather theatrically removed the handle of the pump. But actually, probably more importantly, uh, was he demonstrated that depending on which water company supplied your water, you would end up with a much greater or lesser risk. And this is to do with where they were taking their water supply from. 
And he showed this in this uh, map, for example, he compared the Lambeth Water Company in red, uh, where there were five deaths per thousand households, with the Southwark and Vauxhall Company, uh, where there were 71 per thousand. And that was because the Vauxhall one was taking water from contaminated sources in the River Thames. And that was leading to people dying of cholera as a result. So this is a clear demonstration that it was transmitted and that it was transmitted via the water. With that insight, the key to counter combating these waterborne diseases is engineering. Because, crudely, you need to separate human feces from water. If you can do that, these chains of transmission will cease on human to human transmission. And therefore, you need provision of sufficient sewage uh, and sewage treatment. You also need to make sure you source the water from areas which are not contaminated or much less contaminated and then treat the water to ensure that the remaining bacteria and parasites are, and viruses are removed from it. And because of this, because of sewage, and this the building of the great sewers in London transformed the landscape, including, for example, uh, near where I'm speaking, the embankment in, uh, the, uh, of the Thames, which was built primarily, really, to house sewage, sewerage, um, uh, and uh, better water treatment, waterborne infections are now extremely rare in high-income settings. And here are really broadly the two uh, ends of the system. Sewage treatment, where raw sewage or sewage mixed with water is treated so that when it then is put out finally into uh, water supplies, it's completely free of infection. And then water purification to make sure that wherever water is taken from, and whatever contaminates it can then be removed before you drink it out of the tap. And using these two engineering approaches, uh, most countries in the world now have safe water piped to the house or very close to it. So because of engineering, waterborne diseases are in retreat, but they do remain a major threat in areas of poverty. And the World Health Organization, WHO, estimate that around 70% of people have access to uncontaminated on-premises drinking water. That's a vast improvement on where we were 30 or 40 years ago. But at least 2 billion people use water contaminated with faeces as their drinking source. And this causes, to, to this day, substantial numbers of deaths. The most risky is what's called surface water, so that's streams and rivers. Uh, but even things like wells can become uh, significantly contaminated. Now, it is possible to make contaminated water safe to drink by a combination of boiling, filtering, and chemicals, for example, iodine. So if you're using uh, water from an unknown source, it is possible to make it safe, but at a cost. This is, and is much more practical to produce uh, safe and drinkable water direct to people's living, uh, living and working quarters. These diseases, however, have not gone away. And when the infrastructure breaks down, due to wars or disaster, cholera and other diarrheal diseases very rapidly follow. And just taking cholera, and I'm illustrating this with the famous four, uh, etching the four, four uh, horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, if you're just taking cholera, cholera still affects an estimated three to five million people worldwide, so this, these are not trivial numbers, and causes somewhere between uh, 58 and 130,000 deaths by official estimates. That's down from an estimated 3 million deaths a year in the 1980s. So this is a substantial improvement. But you do get very big outbreaks where there's breakdowns of, uh, of um, infrastructure. Uh, recent major outbreaks, including in Yemen, tragically uh, another side effect of the war there. And you can see in uh, the, uh, the effects of this, particularly affecting deaths in children, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, Haiti, following uh, an earthquake, uh, and Mozambique. So it, it is a real demonstration of the fact that we do need to maintain uh, this essential water and sewerage uh, infrastructure. So that's water. Then you um, can have situations where vegetables can harbor human or animal fecal contamination leading to infection. Now in some settings, vegetables are actually fertilized by human feces, uh, so-called night soil. So there's a direct uh, situation where they're actually sprayed on, provide, provides a good uh, uh, nitrogenous uh, fertilizer, but obviously comes at a, a risk. 
And animal manure is a common fertilizer. In fact, we use it uh, extensively in uh, gardening in the UK uh, and uh, in um, wider settings, in lower income settings. So you can have the combination, having feces near uh, vegetables is quite common. Additionally, and this is very important in the water wash diseases, people may not have somewhere between the plant being grown and you eating it, someone who has handled it may not have washed their hands after they defecated. And therefore, and if that happens, you can end up with extremely high levels of human feces in what you eat. I realize this is not a terribly uh, delicate subject to talk about, but it is actually essential to understand that. And therefore, the old adage about anything uh, which you don't know its source, cook it, wash it, peel it, or leave it, is really the safest thing to do. Washing vegetables uh, is an extremely important thing to do if they're going to be eaten raw. And there are a lot of examples of these uh, infections where human feces on food can lead to human infection. They include typhoid, also known as enteric fever. Uh, paratyphoid is another one of these. A major killer uh, in previous eras, still a major disease in low-income settings, can be waterborne, but very commonly actually can be on or in food. Uh, bacterial and viral diarrheal diseases cause substantial mortality still in children. Uh, traveler's diarrhea, which many people, uh, even from high-income settings, have, would have seen, but also specific diseases such as polio, which is an, uh, a disease that used to paralyze uh, many um, children, uh, now very close to eradication, but passed on fecal Giardia parasites can cause a chronic diarrhea, several intestinal worms. There's a long list uh, of things which you can catch uh, if you don't have a hygienic uh, system all the way from the field uh, to mouth. Some of these infections can go on for a long time and therefore the person who's got them can remain infectious to other people for long periods. And some of the faecal infections are infectious only for a short periods. Some of the really severe diarrheas, for example, uh, they, uh, they literally uh, get spurted out all over the place and that's the way they get passed on. But others, people can have them chronically for long times, constantly excreting them. Uh, the risk is particularly high in people who are not hand-washing and at the same time are uh, preparing uncooked foods. So that's the big risk. And it includes several parasites uh, and typhoid as an example. Um, you can treat people, and that will stop their infectiousness, but in the period when they are infected, they can cause problems for other people they're preparing food for. And because of this, when this was realized, this, use, this did in some situations lead to draconian incarceration. The most well-known example being uh, the chef or cook, Mary Malone, uh, a, a, a lady uh, un, unfairly named by the uh, press, Typhoid Mary, uh, who spent almost 30 years in forcible incarceration in the USA uh, to prevent her from passing typhoid, which, for which she used a chronic shedder on to other people. Fortunately, uh, that is in no way necessary now due to combination of hygiene, cooking, and treatment. But there are some major diseases where even hand washing and clean water are not enough. And fortunately for these, we are increasingly developing other countermeasures of which uh, the most important is vaccines. And I've just given two examples. One, uh, the disease rotavirus, which is a fecal oral disease of children primarily, uh, and given England and Wales data, this is true around the world. And you can see that there used to be epidemics of this every year. Uh, and then you can see the blue arrow where the vaccination was brought in. Uh, and then these epidemics almost entirely go away. So here's an example where actually uh, a medical intervention is key. Uh, and very encouragingly, in the last few weeks, we've had the uh, results of trials of an effective typhoid vaccine. Typhoid, again, something which can be difficult to eliminate in low-income settings. And uh, this particular vaccine uh, providing almost 80% protection, uh, which is a very major advance. Although diarrheal diseases sound trivial, though unpleasant, uh, in children in particular, they can be a major cause of mortality, mainly because children become dehydrated as a result. Uh, and they cause uh, just under, uh, or over 8% 8, 8 of global deaths of children under five around the world. 
so around half a million cases a year. But this has decreased over time. And if you look at deaths from infectious diarrhoea and enteric fevers in children of all ages, they're falling rapidly almost everywhere. And this is the combination of sanitation, clean water, providing soap, really important for hand washing, then when people do get diarrhoea, rehydrating them, less malnutrition because children who are malnourished are more at more risk, in a few cases antibiotics uh, and uh, vaccines. But of these, clean water and sanitation are by far the most important. You don't have to be infected by the actual bacteria to get uh, ill as a result of people not washing their hands when they prepare food. And I'm just giving one example uh, where that's not true. Uh, Staphylococcus, which is uh, a relatively common thing on people's hands, some forms of this can produce a toxin. It's not an infection itself. Uh, and if people haven't washed their hands and they prepare foods, mass-prepared foods, uh, baked goods, poultry, and so on, uh, people can get a really bad uh, explosive diarrhea very shortly after they actually eat it. It's not from an infection, it's from the toxin which has come from the bacteria on someone's hands who hasn't washed their hands before they prepare. Making the point repeatedly, the way to deal with this is hand washing before food preparation. Not all of these fecal-oral things are uh, infections of the gut, and uh, fecal-oral viral hepatitis uh, is an example. There are two important examples. There's hepatitis A, very common worldwide, and the rarer and but more severe hepatitis E. Hepatitis A is uh, 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 very common, um, over a million symptomatic cases a year, uh, and um, uh, the reason that you get this is very similar to the diarrheal diseases I've been talking about. Food, water, person to person, mainly from humans. Very rare in high-income settings, except in high-risk groups, because people have um, sanitation uh, and plentiful clean water. And there is a highly effective vaccine for those environments where people uh, need it. Hepatitis E, less common but more serious and a particular concern in pregnancy. So this is another reason to make sure strong uh, hygiene around people who are pregnant in particular. You, there are forms from humans and also from animals. So again, uh, you've got uh, another serious infection uh, where sanitation uh, is very important. So those are diseases of water, either contaminated water, waterborne, uh, or failure to maintain sanitation. Now I'd like to move on to milk. Human milk is obviously essential for babies. We can't do really without it and provides a lot of passive immunity. I'll come back on to that. But uh, in almost all cultures... Uh, animal, and, uh, animal milk and milk products are central to some parts of the diet. This may be drunk milk, uh, or it might be products like cheese or yogurts. Mainly from cows, also goats, uh, sheep, uh, camels. There's a variety of different uh, things, but cows are obviously the most common globally. Uh, milk is the principal route of transmission of some infections from cows, and the two most important of these uh, historically, are brucellosis and bovine tuberculosis, so a slight variant of the human tuberculosis. But milk is also a very good medium because it provides nutrients for the bacteria as well as for us for transmitting many other infections. And CDC, uh, Communicable Disease uh, in uh, Control in the States, says uh, improperly handled raw milk is responsible for nearly three times more hospitalizations than any other food, foodborne source. So milk is easy to contaminate, although an excellent form of nutrition. I'd like really just to talk about uh, a few of these uh, specific infections of milk, because as I say, they are important, uh, particularly historically, but also still in some areas. And the first of these is brucellosis, almost all of which comes from milk and milk products. The other people who get it tend to be uh, uh, farmers uh, of um, milk-producing animals can cause a chronic, debilitating disease, goes on for a long time, can affect the bones, joints, reproductive organs. It's, a, it's an unpleasant infection to have. The great majority of the infections is from milk, although it can also be occupational or sexual occasionally. It used to be very common worldwide, and in some areas, including the UK, the majority of cattle herds are affected uh, historically. A combination of good animal husbandry, so managing uh, cattle 
in an effective way and an animal vaccination program has meant that brucellosis in high-income settings is now extremely rare and it's mainly from goats actually in particularly the Mediterranean area. Uh, Major General Sir David Bruce uh, uh, is the person after whom this is named and did a lot of the work to look at this uh, very formidable man as this photograph I think probably implies. A second um, uh, infection uh, from cows, which used to be extremely important in the UK, still is in some other countries, is tuberculosis, uh, but the cattle form of it, bovine tuberculosis. And this comes from drinking milk. So this is different from human tuberculosis, uh, which is spread by the respiratory route uh, as a lung disease. This is one that is ingested with milk. It's excreted in the milk when the cows have the TB, tuberculosis, and it can cause problems in the gut and in other parts of the body. It was very common, so um, in the early part of the 20th century, around 1,600 children a year were estimated to die from this. Many more caught it and had significant illness for prolonged periods. Animal husbandry, good management of animal herds, dairy herds, reduces it, but it's proved more difficult to eliminate than brucellosis. And in part, actually, that's because we don't have a highly effective vaccine. Uh, and if you look at uh, bovine TB in the UK, it has actually increased over the last decades. And what you see in the maps from the top left all the way through is the spreading of bovine tuberculosis uh, in England. So it's in the cattle. So why is it not in the humans? And the answer is... Uh, pasteurization. Pasteurization of milk is highly effective at preventing TB, brucellosis, and many other infections. And it also means you can extend the shelf life of the milk quite significantly. Uh, before pasteurization, it would last much longer, shorter period of time. And here's a list of just some of the diseases which used to be passed on by milk before it was pasteurized. The current pasteurization process is very short. It heats uh, to just over 70 degrees for at least 15 seconds. And the compulsory pasteurization of milk to protect children in particular from these serious infections was really what led to them going away. But it was when it was brought in, in stages between the 1920s and 1950s, very controversial. And if you read the uh, Hansard reports of debates in Parliament about this, you find there's really quite, right, quite serious debates around this. And despite over 65,000 people dying uh, of bovine TB alone between 1912 and 1937, there was a very strong lobby against pasteurisation made up of parts of the dairy industry, usually the top end, who uh, their selling advantage was having uh, what was seen as high-class, clean herds, and people who were philosophically uh, opposed to pasteurization because it was interfering with nature or a variety of other uh, uh, reasons, which seemed very surprising to put against very large numbers of children dying. But that was the debate that was had at that stage. But pasteurization was brought in, and it has been transformational. There are some milk products which are difficult to produce when pasteurized, uh, and as a result of that, uh, they're still available. They include some traditional cheeses and some yogurts. Now, the process of making cheese and yogurts does actually kill very many bacteria, uh, partly through acidification, changing the pH of it, but not all of them. And in particular, some soft cheeses from unpasteurized milk are a risk to more vulnerable people such as the very immunosuppressed. So they need to be much more careful about uh, eating these than most people do. And one group in particular who are not used to this and need to be reminded are that pregnant women need to be very careful to avoid them, in particular due to the bacteria Listeria, which if they eat it, they are roughly 10 times more likely to catch a significant infection than non-pregnant women. And it can also cross the placenta and cause problems in the newborn. So this is an important example um, of uh, a, a public health intervention. You've just got to tell people who are pregnant for a period of time, uh, they've got to steer clear of these unpasteurized products. Before I leave milk, it is important, I think, to stress, however, the importance of breast milk for babies. It is highly protective against infections. It is extremely nutritious. 
uh, and is one of the most important things uh, for the good health of newborns and uh, for several months afterwards. It's a safe and ideal form of nutrition. It does protect against diarrheal diseases, good evidence for that, uh, particularly in the first few days after uh, a child is born. Antibodies from the mother are passed on in the breast milk to the baby. This uh, passive immunity, which protects against a number of diseases for quite a period of time. And therefore, uh, exclusive breastfeeding for babies in the first six months, or at least a large proportion of it from uh, breast milk, is recommended by WHO and the NHS. There are infections that can be passed on uh, by human breast milk. Uh, HIV is probably the uh, most important of these, but these are very rare, in particular in, in people who've got control disease, extremely rare, and the benefits of breast milk uh, are, are very high. So that's milk. Moving on to eggs, the other major dairy product. Uh, eggs are, again, extremely nutritious. Um, they are, in most places in the world, one of the most affordable forms of people getting uh, good quality protein and other, uh, other nutrition. Um, uh, but they can, if the hens which lay them are infected, they can pass on infections specifically, and the most important of these, salmonella. Now, you can mitigate this risk by cooking the eggs until they're hard. But for many dishes, uh, that's not what people uh, aim for. And as a result of that, when salmonella became uh, epidemic in the poultry herds of uh, poultry flocks of the UK, uh, this caused a crisis for the UK poultry industry in the mid-1990s uh, and led to serious political ramifications, including resignation of a minister and so on. The initial way of dealing with this was mass slaughter of hens, uh, but over time, this switched over to poultry vaccination, so vaccinating the hens against salmonella. And as a result of that, uh, laboratory-confirmed cases of salmonella have dropped uh, from greater than 18,000 in the mid-90s uh, to under 500 uh, since 19, uh, 2010. In the UK, uh, we actually now, as a result of this big epidemic, have a really clear and careful uh, uh, ability to monitor eggs all the way through from the point they're laid to the point they're eaten. And most people won't have noticed this particularly, but on uh, an egg in the UK, you'll have this lion mark, which is a sign that it comes from a controlled flock, and then a very large amount of information, including the farming method, for example, whether it's organic uh, or not, the country of origin, uh, and even the farm in ID which farm it came from and when, uh, when it came from that. So you can trace an egg right the way back uh, if, you, if you look at it uh, in your fridge today. So those are specific things from milk and eggs. Meat has a number of risks, of which the most important is that animals and poultry have gut bacteria, and these can infect humans, including, in fact, particularly uh, salmonella. And animal feces can get onto meat or poultry in the slaughtering and processing of, of meat. So, uh, uh, and anybody who's seen um, abattoirs will understand how this works. They can also uh, contaminate vegetables on farms or in preparation. So animal feces can get into food by a variety of routes. The most important of these are salmonella and campylobacter. And these are causes of uh, what is commonly called food poisoning. Uh, diarrhea plus or minus vomiting. Very unpleasant when you have it, you certainly know you've had it. Uh, and uh, those, uh, these forms of contamination, therefore, are things to avoid, if at all possible. And the key to managing this uh, is um, to cook food. Cook uh, food, and particularly uh, uh, if you're not going to cook it, you need to deal with it by other routes. Fully cooked meat, even when contaminated, is very low risk. The big risk tends to come with preparing uncooked foods with the same hands and the same utensils as cooked foods. So people will use tongs to uh, put a, uh, a, um, an uncooked sausage onto the barbecue. People who are not used to cooking are particularly likely to do this. They often take the barbecue as their area of speciality. And then they use the same product to take the cooked things and serve it onto someone's plate. And therefore, the contamination can be passed on even though uh, something has been uh, been uh, cooked uh, uh, when you look at it. Uh, so this is a classic way to achieve cross-contamination. But it's really important that people keep cooked food and uncooked food separate uh, and wash hands between handling them. 
Finally, before I move on to some very specific infections which have a particular life cycle, uh, another contribution of engineering. Refrigeration and freezing have massively extended the, both the period by which you can keep food, so they make it much easier for people to shop only a few times uh, over a period of time rather than having to do it daily for fresh food, so they keep things longer. But also importantly, they substantially slow the expansion. If there is a bacteria on your food, it'll expand much more slowly if it's refrigerated and more slowly still if frozen. So it's very useful pre-cooking. And then if you're going to eat something after a period of time post-cooking, you also want to refrigerate it to reduce the risk uh, that any bacteria that are there can get there in high numbers. Now, freezing has an additional benefit, which is some particular, particularly parasites can also be killed by it. So if you're going to eat uncooked meat, one very important thing you can do is freeze it for a period of time, and that will kill parasites. I'll come on to some of these, uh, and that makes it safe to do. I'm now going to just give some examples of some uh, parasitic infections. I could have chosen another, but I'm choose parasitic infections, which have an extremely complicated life cycle that depends on you eating a particular form of meat or fish. And I'm going to start off with the beef tapeworm. A beef tapeworm, rather unfairly called beef tapeworm, is actually a human tapeworm. The, the tapeworm lives in humans, can grow in us up to two, 20 meters, so you really notice it when it comes out and live for up to 25 years. And during that time, the person who's got it will be shedding eggs the whole time from the tapeworm. If their feces gets into a field where cows are eating, the cows eat the eggs, and the eggs then uh, lead to infection of the cows, and cysts occur in the muscle of the cow. And what you've got down here, so you've got the tapeworm uh, here, then the egg, um, uh, bottom right, you can just see it under a microscope, they're tiny. And then you have cysts uh, in the uh, meat, which is called measly meat, and that has become contaminated. If you eat this uh, measly meat with these cysts and you don't cook the meat, then you, you are likely to get a tapeworm and the cycle repeats. So it's a complicated life cycle between the cow uh, and the human. Uh, the ways you can deal with this and tapeworm is now very rare in most uh, countries of the world, but not all by any means, is you dispose of human feces. So if it doesn't get onto the uh, fields, it's not going to be an issue. Inspect the meat so that if you've got measly meat, people pick it up and remove it from the food chain. Cook beef, because cooking will kill them. Or if you wish to eat something uncooked, freeze it, because freezing will kill these. So there are varieties of ways, and if you do that systematically, tapeworm will die out, as it has in... Uh, most of Europe, for example. Pork tapeworm uh, has a very similar life cycle to beef, beef tapeworm, except these, that the, the cycle is between humans and pigs. Uh, and humans, again, excrete the eggs, uh, feces eat. But the difference here is that um, pigs will eat human feces out of choice rather than just because it's on their grass. And that goes on to cystic muscles and undercooked meat uh, completes the cycle. Now, pigs uh, live close to humans, and they often eat human feces. In fact, there were some, quite a large number of areas of the world where pig toilets were common, where actually there was a toilet put above a pigsty so that it disposed of the feces, good thing, uh, and the pigs had something to eat. But of course, that makes the, the, uh, the um, uh, cycle a lot easier to complete. The problem for us is not eating, getting the, the tapeworm. The tapeworm itself uh, does little more than cause psychological distress when it comes out. But that the eggs, which are meant to infect the pigs, can also infect us. And we can then get cysts. And the most important ones, although we can get them in the muscle and various other areas, is when we get cysts in the brain. And this is actually quite common in pig-rearing uh, parts of the world. And what I have here on the, on the right uh, is a uh, CT scan, uh, or, sorry, a, a scan rather, of uh, a brain uh, which has got cysts in it from someone who's eaten uh, the eggs uh, from human, uh, cysts, from human pork tapeworm. And the reason that's important uh, is this can lead to uh, epilepsy. And in fact, this thing called neurocystosicosis, neuro because it's in the brain, cystosicosis because it's from the cysts, 
uh, is one of the commonest causes of epilepsy worldwide. So getting rid of these tapeworms uh, is absolutely uh, more than just a matter of convenience. It's a matter of reducing uh, significant uh, uh, disability for some people. It's not just um, uh, cows uh, and uh, pigs uh, which have a cycle. Uh, and here I'm doing a site crossover, uh, fish tapeworm. So uh, the fish tapeworm that I'm talking about, uh, humans are one of the hosts that they can use, but bears, dolphins, and other carnivores, uh, anything which eats raw fish, uh, potentially, and as a mammal, can potentially be a host for this. And this is a more complicated cycle. The feces from that we have defecation gets into the water. Uh, it infects um, uh, crustacea, which are tiny swimming creatures, and they're eaten by small fish, and then the small fish are eaten by large fish, and then the large fish are eaten by us. So this is a very complicated cycle that has to go around. Um, we catch the tapeworm if we eat the fish either raw or very lightly cooked or very lightly pickled. Those are the classic ways to do so. And I think you can also think of dishes where that potentially is a risk. Two ways you can make sure you don't catch this is freezing, uh, which will do this, prolonged, uh, or cooking. And these will kill the cysts before you eat them. So those are things that occur in the gut. And then there are a variety of parasites with a very similar kind of approach uh, where the cycle, the oral cycle, occurs uh, but causes problems in the liver. Uh, and these are liver flukes, a flat, kind of flat, uh, leaf-shaped worm uh, uh, in, in at least some cases. They live in the bile ducts of the liver, um, some of the ones that I'm talking about, and they're important because they can cause liver or bile duct cancer. Uh, in, in these ones, eggs are excreted by humans, eggs from these are excreted by humans, eaten by freshwater snails, and uh, then the, uh, the um, uh, parasites swim from the snails, infect fish, and we eat the fish, again, we don't cook them, uh, and the cycle goes around. In each one of these, you can see a really complicated life cycle where uncooked meat or fish is the key to this. Those are all things which have humans as uh, part of the natural life cycle. There are also a number of parasites where humans are an accidental host. And an example is the sheep dog tapeworm hydatid disease. Um, and we're what's called a dead end host because uh, although it can be severe in us, it's not, that's not the reason it's called a dead end host, it's because we don't transmit. So hydatid is a dog tapeworm, you get it in the dog on the left top thing, and uh, their eggs, the eggs are, uh, in, in their stool, in their feces, infect the sheep, which uh, feed, feed on this, if the sheep then die uh, and the dogs eat the sheep, then the dog will catch the tapeworm and the cycle goes round. The risk to humans from this is that we can also be infected by eating the dog feces from this thing and they can cause cysts in the liver, lungs and bones, which can be really very severe. And what we've got here is a scan uh, of someone who's got hydatid cysts in the liver and these are absolutely massive, as you can see. So the way you have to control for these is you have to deal with the dog-sheep cycle, and the two key things are actually deworming dogs, where they deal with sheep, and stopping dogs eating dead sheep. If you can do both of those, then this problem goes away. It's now really very rare in the UK, uh, but relatively common in some sheep farming areas, for example, uh, some areas around the Mediterranean. And then you have some really quite uh, varied infections, and I'm just going to choose one as an example, which can come from a whole variety of different uh, animals where we are accidentally infected, but the, because we're accidentally infected, the worms or parasites can get into very dangerous places. And examples of the kinds of things we're I'm talking about, eating uncooked fish, particularly eels, frogs, Snakes. These are not things that people, most people would eat under ordinary circumstances, but almost any meat you eat, you might be infected by an accidental parasite. It's not intending to get into you. You're not part of its life cycle, but it does anyway. And the problem with these is they can actually uh, behave in a way which is extremely unpleasant. So, for example, this uh, infection, nasismasis, 
uh, can cause very bad pain uh, as it moves through the body and it can invade the eye or even the brain and uh, that can be really uh, problematic. The way to deal with this, a cracked record on this, is cook food. Marinating is an alternative. So my summary of all of these is if you eat a meat you don't know, don't eat it undercooked. And there's a whole list of different things you can catch uh, parasites from. I've just listed some of these. I'm not trying to argue that people shouldn't eat ex sort of exotic foods, by which I simply mean foods that most people wouldn't normally eat uh, under ordinary circumstances. But if you do so, uh, please do cook them. Finally, before I summarise some errors, uh, something which is not exactly a, a, an infection under the ordinary, uh, in the ordinary sense, but is very important uh, and is passed on orally, and that is prions. Prions behave like an infection, but actually they're a misfolded protein. So they're not an infection in the ordinary sense of the word. And the ones that we worry about can cause, both in humans and in animals, neurological disease including really some very severe neurological diseases. And they're transmitted orally. There are several. An example, for example, that's common in the UK, doesn't affect humans, uh, is something called scrapie, which is a prion disease of sheep, and it goes around a sheep cycle. The reason these are important, or one of the many reasons these are important, is that they're very difficult to denature or sterilise by conventional cooking or disinfection. So in contrast to everything else I previously said, where a combination of hand washing, sanitation, and cooking will uh, get rid of virtually all the serious risk, uh, these are much more difficult to deal with by that route. It was first discovered in humans uh, in, an infection, well, in, in this prion uh, condition, Kuru, and this was transmitted in uh, traditional cannibalistic uh, rituals that were, that were done to, uh, to um, respect the dead person, but they were eaten by relatives and uh, neighbours. And this led to the ability to actually pass on a human prion between people and led to a very unpleasant neurological disease, uh, Kuru. So that's how these were first discovered, because they weren't a conventional infection. The most recent one that has caused significant problems in the UK uh, was BSE, a prion disease passed on between cattle or in cattle, uh, and when it was passed on in a small numbers, but still and tragically very serious when it happened, CJD uh, disease, variant uh, uh, disease. So BSE epidemic spread in the UK cattle probably initially because they were given animal feed that was from an other animals rather than uh, plant food, which is obviously what their normal cycle is. And there was a substantial epidemic of BSE, which you can see uh, at the top uh, there, uh, over time. And then subsequently, and this is the bottom line, a mercifully small, but still, you know, the number of the people involved, uh, uh, awful disease, where people uh, were ca caught this prion disease from beef. Once it started, almost universally fatal, this condition, and people die an unpleasant neurological disease, uh, neurological uh, death. So this is an example of something where we really have to control it in the animal source. The conventional route by which we control most foodborne diseases, freezing or refrigeration, hygiene, cooking, uh, are not sufficient. So I'd only now just like to bring this together by talking about the various routes by which we uh, can all, as communities, uh, reduce the risk of these potentially very common oral transmitted diseases. And the majority of, uh, of, well, quite a large number of them, particularly the waterborne diseases, uh, the key to them is engineering them out. Uh, many of these infections used to cause massive epidemics. They now hardly have any risk at all in high-income settings. So the provision of sewerage, ample clean water has been transformational. And therefore, whilst individual outbreaks can occur, and they still occur uh, every year, uh, major outbreaks are very rare out with um, disasters. The people who have been responsible for this have tended to be uh, the state, by insisting on things for uh, clean water and uh, provision of sewage, 
and very large businesses. So this is something which, in a sense, most people don't think about is provided for them, and people just don't think about the fact there's a huge water treatment and sewerage system underpinning uh, the ability to live, for example, in large cities. The second group of things we can do are around farming and food handling in the commercial sector. So good animal husbandry reduces the chance of infections which can spread to humans amongst uh, flocks and herds, uh, and therefore that's a very important first line of defence. Professional abattoirs, clean refrigerated uh, food chains, clean and refrigerated shops are really important. The initial washing of vegetables, which occurs, most things you can buy in high-income settings will have been washed at least once between the time that it is harvested and the time that you buy it. Uh, most people should uh, be recommended to wash uh, a second time. Uh, for vegetables and fruit, when you are likely to eat them uncooked, uh, and those help uh, to keep them free of feces all the way through uh, the uh, food chain. And this is mainly the responsibility of multiple small and some large businesses, farms, food distribution companies, shops, food shops. But the state does have a role and has had a role for centuries in inspection of food and in regulation. And these, many of the regulations uh, have their origins uh, centuries ago. An area which is much more, an area, an area which is clearly the responsibility of the food preparer is the preparation and serving of food. Keeping food refrigerated until use, hand washing after toilet and, and before food handling, you need to do both, and after raw food handling, these are the really critical elements. Washing uncooked food, cooking thoroughly where it's available, and keeping refrigerated afterwards. All of these are simple things. Most people do them just as a matter of course without thinking about them, but this is actually not how historically we used to prepare food, and that's the reason why uh, these rates of these infections have gone down. Out of the home, these are the responsibilities of small companies and chains, and when there are outbreaks, the state will map the outbreaks and trace them back to the company from which they came. And that's true, again, around the world. But most cooking, of course, is done at home, and that's the responsibility, therefore, of the person preparing food uh, for their families. So in summary, uh, overall, I've talked about the oral route of transmission, and it has historically been massively important and still is very important, particularly in lower-income settings, but it is true, important uh, everywhere. Uh, waterborne diseases, things that you catch if the water is not treated and sewage is not disposed of hygienically. Milk uh, and other dairy products. The fecal-oral link between humans, which you can get on food from humans if there isn't sufficient hand hygiene and good faeces disposal. Contamination from animals, and that's the reason for making sure that, uh, that both Vegetables and meats are clean and, and or cooked. And then various parasites of different sorts where humans are a central host and a few where humans are an accidental host. But all the way through this, the point I've wanted to stress is the way we control the orally transmitted infections is not primarily the role of medicine, but the role of those involved in engineering, food handling and cooking. Thank you very much.